I'm Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. Storm Cunningham is an expert strategist for all things revitalization. An author, publisher, speaker, and consultant, he's here to talk with us this week about his view of the restoration economy on the global stage. We aim to find out what role historic preservation can also play on that stage. This is PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're joined by Storm Cunningham, who, uh, for a lack of better words, can be described as Mr. Revitalization. He is the publisher of Revitalization News and is a well-published speaker and expert on this topic of revitalization, which is critical to preservation efforts, not only here in the United States, but across the country. And so we're going to be talking to Storm today about what it exactly means to be involved in revitalization. So thanks for joining us, Storm. Oh, thanks, Nick. Glad to be here. Um, so, Storm, just to jump into this, to give people a, uh, some sense of who you are and how you got involved in this, how did you get into, into revitalization? What brought you to this field of study and, and this topic? Well, at the risk of alienating all of these lovely historic preservation folks, it was actually my love of nature that got me involved in this. I've been a scuba diver my entire adult life and uh, had gotten depressed over the decades as I kept returning to favorite sites and finding them dead or dying. And uh, back in, I guess it was late 80s, early 90s, I volunteered to help a German scientist working in Jamaica on reef restoration. I spent a week down there helping him install his experiments. And I saw them work, and I saw these reefs coming back to life again. And it just suddenly hit me that we don't have to be satisfied with simply slowing down the rate at which we destroy the world, which is kind of the goal of a lot of green and sustainability efforts, you know, that we can actually undo the damage. And that was a that was a real epiphany for me. And then uh, I got a job as director of strategic initiatives with the Construction Specifications Institute after having been self-employed for over a decade. And I figured I could probably last maybe five years in a nine to five before I went crazy. So I needed an exit strategy. And I figured, well, I'll just write a book. And then when I leave, uh, I'll have that as my platform to go into the usual speaking and consulting thing. And I uh, wrote The Restoration Economy. It came out six years later. I left CSI and uh, have been uh, working full-time in this restoration revitalization field since 2002 when that first book came out, which was called The Restoration Economy. So why don't you tell us a little bit about The Restoration Economy? What is the focus of that book? What does it tell us about? Well, this was the first book to document the rise of all these new restorative disciplines and industries and to organize them in a way that people could understand 
why they were growing and uh, what their future was. I, I broke them down into eight categories or silos, uh, you know, the kind of economic categories rather than scientific categories. These are the kinds of projects that get funded. So there were four on the natural side, which were fishery restoration, watershed restoration, ecological restoration, and agricultural restoration. And on the built side, you had brownfields remediation, redevelopment, uh, infrastructure renewal, uh, catastrophe reconstruction, and of course, everybody's favorite, heritage restoration. Interesting. And that book did pretty well, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of people credit it with the rise of a lot of the organizations and programs that start with RE. You know, one of the effects it had was to get people realizing the power of that prefix and that this prefix was really the basis of the future of the planet. So if you could describe revitalization, and obviously you have at length in many pages, but for people who aren't familiar um, or you were talking to someone who had never heard of the term before, what is revitalization sort of in a nutshell? (laughs) Well, in many ways... uh, you're putting your finger on one of the major problems. Uh, the reason more places don't successfully revitalize is because there isn't any rigorous agreed upon definition of revitalization. And as a result of that, people don't think of it as an actual discipline, which is why when you go into most cities, even though they're all working towards revitalization and say they want revitalization, they hardly ever put anybody in charge of it. It's one of those things where everybody's in charge, so nobody's in charge. Right, or it just falls into sort of some other already existing position like economic development or something like that. Yeah, right. You know, most economic development is just focused on jobs, which is just one tiny, tiny slice of what revitalization is all about. Or the mayor says, I'm in charge of revitalization, but of course has no background whatsoever in in actually doing it. And no matter who takes it on, even though they might have tremendous uh, personal skills and a background in one of the many silos, there are no degree programs in revitalization. There's nobody, uh, very few people out, out there who have any kind of framework in which to work, you know, or any kind of process to bring to bear on it. It's as if revitalization is just this kind of magic thing that happens if you do a lot of stuff. There's a core definition that most people agree upon is that it's when a place has an increasing quality of life, uh, a growing economy, and most people would throw in an environment that's uh, gaining more health. But in actual fact, revitalization can be stimulated and even predicated on other factors, you know, arts, for instance, or restoring uh, local culture, which is happening in a lot of indigenous communities right now that leads to revitalization. Some communities are entirely basing their economy on the restoration of natural resources. So it's, it's kind of dangerous to try to be too firm about what the definition of revitalization is. Right. And as you said, I mean, you've already kind of broken it down into all these different silos, and it can kind of take on many different forms and formats. And obviously, if someone's really interested in this, we would encourage them to pick up the restoration economy and kind of get a more in-depth version of what you're describing right here. Well, that sounds like excellent advice. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Let me ask you this, though. I mean, 
talk about a successful revitalization project, and I suppose you could talk about it in broad terms or maybe use examples. I mean, when does it go well? Because I think it's easy to say, oh, we want to revitalize this place, but what are sort of the tenets or the core principles of a successful revitalization project? What do you see across the board that makes it uh, a success? Well, actually, the way you've worded the question puts the finger right on what's probably the single most important factor in failure or success. You're referring to a revitalization project. And in actual fact, for revitalization to happen, it needs to be an ongoing program. Human bodies, ecosystems, you know, any kind of complex adaptive system is in a constant state of regeneration. That's how it grows and maintains its health. It's constantly replacing, replenishing, reconnecting different elements of you know, the body or the ecosystem. And that works in economies, too. So when revitalization is treated as a project, something with an end date, it's almost guaranteed to fail. Now, you can have a redevelopment project, a restoration project, a renovation project, a remediation project. That's fine. Those are the ingredients of revitalization. But for the recipe to work, to actually get the revitalization of the overall place that you want, that requires an ongoing program. So it's almost like if you're in a community here in Maryland or even beyond, anywhere really for that matter, and people are at the grassroots level and, and feel like one of the, the re-categories, as you say, could be helpful to their community, they shouldn't approach it like a one-off. It should almost be approached like we have a public works department and we should have a revitalization department that is just always focused on how, how we're doing this. It can't be just sort of a, a one-and-done sort of thing. Yeah, and you could create a brand new revitalization department, but uh, maybe a more practical way of doing it would be to repurpose an organization that already has a strong focus on revitalization and just make it more strategic and holistic. For instance, one of my big projects right now, uh, I've got a, a new client uh, where we're working together to come up with the next iteration of land banks. And uh, land banks are, you know, they've only been around for a few decades in this country. You know, there are hundreds of them, but uh, most of them are kind of very tactical and transaction oriented. They consider their mission primarily to be to take possession of vacant properties and then get rid of them as quickly as possible, uh, hopefully to somebody who's going to put them to a higher and better use. A few land banks are taking a more strategic approach and are considering their mission not just to be to get rid of blight, but to actually revitalize the community. And I'm working with some of them right now to define what Land Bank 2.0 would look like. That's really interesting. And and it obviously has a lot of value to the historic preservation community as well, because land banks have sort of been that double-edged sword. I mean, we, we like the idea of getting projects and, and properties out of the foreclosure process and coming up with some other way of handling them. But a lot of it has been focused on just demolition or clearance and revitalization is an interesting and perhaps not all too used tool for the land bank community. So obviously there's a, there's a lot of ways to to integrate this. Yeah, that's one of the reasons the land banks I'm working with contacted me as they were tired of getting all this uh, criticism from folks saying, hey, didn't you learn anything from urban renewal back in the 60s? <laughs> you know, just destroy it and they will come does not work. Yeah, we've seen that over and over again. Well, Storm, we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, let's talk about the future, and you, which you're sort of leading into here, talking about Land Bank 2.0 and, and what can we expect in the future and what are the challenges? So we'll be right back here on PreserveCast. 
And now it's time for a preservation explanation. You might have noticed Storm mentioned earlier. He's a scuba diver. Can you guess what that means? That's right. I'm about to share with you a little bit of underwater history. Some listeners may be aware. The first American submarine was built during the Revolutionary War. David Bushnell, while studying at Yale College, discovered that gunpowder was capable of exploding underwater. And after news of the battles at Lexington and Concord in 1775, Bushnell felt moved to contribute to the war effort in some way. He invented the Turtle, a one-man, bell-shaped submersible vehicle powered by a hand-crank propeller. The Turtle ultimately failed at its military goal of drilling a hole in the hull of enemy ships and then planting an explosive, but only because the hand-powered drill was unable to penetrate a ship's hull in practice. Bushnell's basic design of air chambers, filling and draining with water to submerge a vehicle, was essentially sound. What listeners may be a little less familiar with is the first U.S. Navy commissioned submarine. In the 1860s, the latest and greatest in naval technology was the ironclad. Wooden-hulled ships of the line were slowly becoming obsolete through the mid-1800s, being replaced by steam-powered ships lined with metal armor that could defend against explosives and incendiary shells. Plus, with their heavy armor, ironclads could simply be used to ram through wooden ships. The first battle between two ironclads happened during the American Civil War. On March 9, 1862, the USS Monitor was used to defend against a wooden Union fleet from the CSS Virginia at the Battle of Hampton Roads, and signaled to the world that wooden ships were a thing of the past. But where's the submarine? Perhaps appropriately, hidden just below the surface. You see, before this momentous battle, the Union foresaw trouble. In the fall of 1861, the U.S. Navy was willing to try anything to prevent their comparatively massive navy of wooden ships from becoming obsolete. And so they commissioned from the Philadelphian firm of Nephi and Levi a submarine based on the design of the French engineer Brutus de Villeroy. The craft was built to carry 18 men and was originally designed with 16 hand-powered paddles sticking out of the sides. The USS Alligator, as it was later dubbed, was intended to sink the CSS Virginia, later the centerpiece of that naval battle at Hampton Roads, while it was still under construction at the Norfolk Navy Yard. The alligator took much longer than expected to construct, and its paddle-powered system proved pretty slow. After the alligator was towed to the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay, naval commander John Rogers felt it was too risky to use in case it were captured and ordered the alligator back to safer waters. Truth be told, the alligator spent most of its life being tested and experimented on at the Washington Navy Yard. On July 3, 1862, the paddles were replaced by a hand-powered propeller, and in March of 1863, the craft was observed by Abraham Lincoln. Soon after, it was decided the alligator would get towed south to help a Union attack on Charleston, South Carolina. However, it was cast adrift in the midst of a storm before ever reaching its destination. Now, we could stay with this topic for hours, but I don't want to run out of air. Be careful not to go too fast as we resurface and get back to PreserveCast. Do you have questions? We may have answers. 
If at any point during this podcast you've thought of a question that you have for us or maybe one of our guests, we'd love to hear about it. You can send an email to podcast at presmd.org, and we'll try and answer it right here on the air on the next episode of PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. We're joined here by Storm Cunningham, and when we left, we were just kind of getting into what the future of revitalization holds, and Storm was talking about a a new client that he has working on the future of land banking and and how to integrate revitalization better into that community. But Storm, broadly defined, how do you see restoration moving forward? Is this a, a bright spot? Should we be optimistic about what the future holds for revitalization? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's really no choice but to see a growth of all these uh, redisciplines uh, because we're on a finite planet with a growing population. And uh, we've already severely damaged our natural resources and depleted them. And we've already developed most of the best places to put cities. So if we want to have any choice other than paving over viable farmlands and uh, ecosystems, we don't have any choice in the future but to redevelop the cities we've already developed and you know increase their capacity and their sustainability and to uh, restore the natural resources that are the basis of every economy. Where do you think it's brightest, though? I mean, do you think legislators are, are finally catching on to this? I mean, we see fits and starts of it here in Maryland, right? I mean, we have tax credit programs that help people restore and rehabilitate historic structures. But then at the same time, we see the General Assembly not investing in those programs like we hope that they would, or or certainly not even where the need is. So do you see more people catching on to this? Or where are the stumbling blocks? What are the challenges associated with this? Well, one of the big problems is when these uh, restoration, revitalization, regeneration programs become too dependent on particular political leadership. Political leaders can be great at getting things started, but if you become too heavily identified with them, then the next administration that comes in, especially if it's of the other party, will tend to just put a a stop to it because they don't want any uh, new uh, successes being credited to their predecessor. So we've seen that over and over again, you know, like in Maryland, where we had great progress towards uh, Chesapeake Bay restoration under Paris Glendening. And then he was replaced by somebody uh, who is apparently in the pocket of the chicken industry and uh, all the other polluters. And, uh, you know, the program almost came to a halt. And now we're seeing the same thing again with the Chesapeake Bay. So the important thing is to use politicians where they're best used you know, to get things going, get things funded, but to build capacity outside of the political process so that you'll have that resilience uh, during uh, changes of administration. How do you do that, though? I mean, that sounds wonderful, and I agree, but in light of what's happening in Washington right now, where, you know, we're seeing the skinny budget come out that talks about doing away with a lot of these critical programs for the kind of work that you're talking about, whether it be natural revitalization or community development programs, How do you build that kind of capacity beyond the political sphere? Have you seen examples of that, or is there there some place that you could point to? You know, part of it, obviously, is getting the private sector more geared towards the opportunities in uh, revitalization and restoration and uh, making it, you know, doing whatever is necessary policy-wise 
to make it easier and more profitable for them to redevelop rather than sprawl. But maybe the most important thing is to put more attention on municipal, county, and regional government bodies rather than federal. You know, the federal government obviously is a mess, pretty dysfunctional, but uh, you don't see as much of that partisan dysfunction the smaller and smaller you get. You know, so when you get down to the neighborhood level, People are mostly focused on the neighborhood and really don't care about political parties. They just want to get things done. You know, and cities have traditionally been the birthplace of almost all good ideas. You look at any anything that's been uh, adopted at the federal level that's been progressive and positive and uh, restorative. It started somewhere at the city level and was simply uh, adopted by federal government. So we need to shift the focus of these programs, you know, down to the uh, local and regional level as much as possible. And we'll see a lot more resilience then. And I mean, it sounds like you're hopeful about the future here, just because of the sort of bump in the road, as far as federal support, you're just sort of seeing that maybe will push us to do even better things at the local and the state level then. Yeah. And that, that can only be good. The more local uh, self-reliance you have, uh, the more resilient the entire country is. You never want to become too uh, dependent on small focal point places that get too much leverage. So it's good for everybody. That said, you still need strong policy support from the federal level in order to, if nothing else, get the government out of the way. Just curious on that point on the policy side for the policy wonks listening to this, is there a policy wish list that you have? I mean, are there things that you would like to see changed at the policy level that would make this work simpler or would make this work more attractive to the private sector? Well, a couple of things. Uh, and these these are both points that I made in the f- first book and the second book, the McGraw-Hill book that came out in 2008 called Rewealth, which focused more on revitalization, whereas the restoration economy was more focused on restorative projects. And uh, the point I was making there is, number one, I'd make the same argument that people involved in sustainability and green efforts have been making for decades now, is we've got to have full cost accounting. Right now, uh, the GDP measures virtually everything as economic growth. You know, Hurricane Katrina was was good for the economy. Pollution is good for the economy. Every time a pedestrian gets run over, it's good for the economy. You know, that's the way our GDP works right now. Any bookkeeper knows you got to have checks and balances, you know, debits and credits. And that's not the way the GDP works. Right now, if we suck all the water out of the ground or all the fossil fuels out of the ground, the loss of those natural resources isn't debited. It's just considered a a pure win. And when we do something damaging, it isn't debited. So full cost accounting is the the single most important thing we can do. Because when that happens, not only will it cut down on destruction, but it'll properly measure the value of restoration. And, And both of those are important because when you properly measure the value of destruction, it enables you to put proper fines in place so that when somebody does do something destructive, they pay a fine that's appropriate to the cost of restoration. Right. And I guess on the other side, too, it would allow you to appropriately measure the value of restoration work, too. Because I think a lot of times, we've faced this here in Maryland, where our tax credit program, you know, and I focus on that because that's one of our principal policy pieces, 
the legislature and our legislative services folks look at it just as purely a cost. You know, well, it's going to cost us $9 million a year to do this thing. Right. And they don't look at the return value to the economy where we've done studies and we can show that it's, you know, eight to one return on investment for the state. But the state is only looking at that first year cost. And they say, oh, well, this is a program that costs us money when in reality it's, it's doing nothing of the sort. Right. And that gets to the second point. You remember, I, I said there were two points I was making policy-wise, and you've just put your finger exactly on the second one, which is, aside from the full cost accounting revolution, the, the easier thing to do would be t to start at least reporting on all this reactivity. Because right now, our entire budgeting and reporting process at every level of government only acknowledges the first two portions of the economic development cycle. The first one being the sprawl and resource extraction, uh, what you could call new development. And then in the middle of the life cycle, you've got the maintenance and the conservation, you know, the maintenance of your built environment, the conservation of what's left of your natural environment. But the third part of that life cycle, all the re-stuff, is invisible to budgeting and reporting. So all you ever hear from the federal government is new housing starts last month were, but there's no report on building renovation, reuse, restoration. Right. Um, and that's the best news in the economy. You know, so people aren't hearing the good news. Yeah. And that's insane. You're right. I mean, that is, that's just pure policy insanity. I mean, that we don't really account for that at all. Yep people rehabbing homes or doing any of that kind of work. And that that's probably, I would imagine, a larger share of the construction world than just new starts. Yeah, I mean, the numbers are in the economy. They're just not broken out in a way that people can perceive them. You know, so these major redevelopment projects get tossed into capital improvements or something like that. Well, we're drawing towards the close here. And I, we've sort of talked about policy challenges, your wish list examples of good ones, what the future holds. And I just wanted to know, we try and ask everyone who comes through PreserveCast about their favorite historic building. And, and in this case, I think what we want to ask you is, what's your favorite revitalization effort with an old building at the center of it? Hmm. Well, I mean, I've been doing this, I've been running all around the world for 15 years now, full time, you know, doing talks and all kinds of places whose economy is almost entirely based on the restoration of historic buildings, you know, gorgeous cities like Lisbon, Portugal. And it's really hard to choose one since I've seen literally hundreds of spectacular ones. But probably the one I've got the closest personal connection to is New Lanark, Scotland. This was uh, built back in the dawn of the Industrial Revolution by a guy named David Dale. And his son-in-law, Robert Owen, who was a utopian industrialist, and they created a, a cotton mill and various other industries in a way that actually became the birthplace of a lot of what we consider progressive policies. You know, they were the first daycare, first health care program for workers, you know, first housing for workers. You know, this, they invented all these kinds of things. And the site is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. The buildings have been beautifully repurposed and reused. And it's not just the heritage either. They are restoring the forest around them, replacing invasive species with native species. And they do a tremendous job of historic education there. It's, it's just one of the most spectacular sites you'll ever see in your life. 
Well, that's a perfect example. That's awesome. Storm, if people want to get a hold of you or they want to hire you to work on a project, how can they find you? Uh, StormCunningham.com is my primary website, and uh, RevitalizationNews.com is published every uh, two weeks or so, you know, on the 1st and 15th of every month. And it documents all this re-stuff that's going on all around the world. There's also, if you go to RevitalizationNews.com, you'll see in the top menu a strategy guide, which is my latest writing on how to overcome a lot of these impediments to revitalization that uh, we've discussed here. Great. Well, Storm, I want to thank you for all the great work that you do and for proselytizing across the world about the value of the re-economy, because we need a whole lot more of re in every corner of this world. So thank you, Storm, and thank you for joining us on PreserveCast today. Thank you, Nick. It was great. Thank you. You don't need to open a history book to find us available online from iTunes and the Google Play Store, as well as our website, presmd.org. This is PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, a unit of the National Park Service. Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and the Maryland Milestones Heritage Area, and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. This week's episode was produced and engineered by Ben and Stephen Israel. Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. You can learn more about them at their website, prettygrittymusic.com, on Facebook or on Twitter at PG underscore Pretty Gritty. To learn more about Preservation Maryland or this week's guest, visit preservationmaryland.org. While there, you can check out our blog and learn about what's current in historic preservation. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Flickr, and Twitter at PreservationMD. And of course, a very special thank you to our listeners. Keep preserving.